You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 273, The Battle at Slim River. Last time, despite a courageous defense by the 11th Indian Infantry Division, the attacking Japanese forces of Lieutenant General Yamashita had outflanked the Commonwealth troops on January 2, 1942, around the town of Kampar and along the Perak River thus forcing back the British-led troops once again. There was nothing for it but to retreat further south, set up another defense, and try again, this time along the Slim River, about 65 miles north of Kuala Lumpur. And this was exactly what Brigadier Archibald Paris would do, because G.O.C. Percival had told Lieutenant General Sir Lewis Heath the Indian Third Corps commander, to hold back the Japanese, at least until January 4th, as that would keep them away from the convoys carrying reinforcements that were on the way. Still, there was only so much General Paris could do, as in, he was powerless to stop the enemy from, again, loading up troops and sailing further down the west coast, putting them parallel with Kuala Lumpur which was Yamashita's next target, because of its airfield. And though Paris could not control the water route, he could and would block up the main road that came south. After all, the Japanese didn't have that many ships to transport the bulk of their forces that way. Besides which, it would not be prudent for the invaders to leap so far south via the water, and allow the enemy to operate in their rear area. Hence, coming down the road was Colonel Tadao Ando's battle group from the 42nd Infantry Regiment, 
At the Battle of Campar, it had been the 41st Infantry Regiment of Colonel Akabe leading the way, but as it had been bloodied by the guns on the heights and the Gurkhas, the 41st was now held in reserve and in shame. So on came the 17 Type 97 Medium and 3 Type 95 Light Tanks of Major Toyosaku Shimada, followed by the men of Endo's regiment. Waiting for whatever came next for the exhausted men of the 11th Indian, about four miles north of the Slim River, at and just above the settlement of Trolak, was Paris's first line of defense. The jungle here was impenetrable, except for the main road, so men would be stationed along it and on the south side of Slim River. That was deemed the best chance the defenders had of holding up the Japanese, at least until reinforcements came. Then, well, who knows, but one thing at a time. Between the city of Trolac and Slim River are several rubber plantations, so there was a thick jungle and many small rivers, hence little flanking by the aggressors was expected in the upcoming battle. If the Japanese wanted to come further south, they would have to push the enemy troops off the road. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But even as the 11th had been retreating from Kampar, they discovered that the enemy had a force marching down along the west coast. This demanded that one brigade of the 11th Division flank out that way just to keep the enemy honest, as this may only be a diversion. Either way, the two remaining brigades, the 12th Indian and 28th Gurkha, were the ones left to block the road. Of course, all three brigades were under strength, had less equipment due to the many retreats, and needed some serious R&R, which they weren't going to get, thanks to the overall Japanese attack strategy of relentless speed. The 12th Indian Brigade, under Lieutenant Colonel Ian Stewart, was chosen to take up the most northern position, about four miles up from Slim River. But more specifically, the 419th Hyderabad Battalion was the most northern, just above Trolak, and they readied their anti-tank weapons and positioned their road-blocking material as fast as they could. 
the 5-2nd Punjab Battalion was just below or south of the Hyderabads, and they too had anti-tank material to set up roadblocks. The last battalion, the 2nd Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, were most south of this most northern defensive chain. They did not possess anti-tank weapons, but it was hoped the enemy's medium and light tanks would not make it this far. As for the Japanese infantry, if they wanted to come this way, they would find the road open. That is, until the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders jumped out of the jungle to ambush them. It was this battalion that had the most jungle combat experience. As at Kampar, this seemed a rather impressive setup that should hand the Japanese many casualties. About four miles south of the 12th Indian Brigade, Lieutenant Colonel Ray Selby's 28th Gurkha Brigade was spread out, but whereas the 12th Indian's alignment was north to south along the road, the 28th Gurkha would be positioned west to east to cover the bridges along the Slim River, which turned to the east in this area. But leaving nothing to chance, each bridge was rigged to blow should the enemy get this far south. The 28th Gurkha was spread out thusly. The most northern battalion here was the 514th Punjab, along the main road, covering the bridge there, and to either side of the Punjabis, but a bit behind, was, from left to right, the 2nd Gurkha and the 2-9th Gurkha. These latter two were set up this way for two reasons. One, to help cover the nearby bridge, and two, just south of the bridge, the road turned east for a few miles, running along Slim River until it then turned back south at the official Slim River Bridge. This way, all three battalions were directly or indirectly covering the bridge, and the short section of road that ran to the east had two brigades sitting on it. Actually, Three, as the 2 1st Gurkha Battalion was even further east or on the right flank of the road, covering its own bridge. And to the right or east of the 2 1st Gurkha was the official Slim River Bridge. Back to where the road turned east, the rail line was also there, but it continued running south. Yet the Japanese could not ride their bicycles on that, so it was left alone. On the farthest left flank, but parallel with the three Gurkha battalions, was an anti-tank battery and some riflemen. But again, the enemy wasn't expected to try to brave the jungle or the many waterways in that area. Which meant that if the Japanese wanted to take control of the bridges along the Slim River, they would have to cross the first bridge, pushing aside the 514th Punjab, turn left, drive east and reach Slim River Bridge, where the road turned south again. But that route meant they had to best three other battalions along the road, and only after getting through the 12th Indian Brigade further up the road. But should all this take place, there was one last obstacle in place. The Slim River Bridge was where the road went from running west to east, to back to the south, 
But to keep that bridge, the last bridge before Kuala Lumpur, out of enemy hands, the 155th Field Artillery Regiment was ensconced just south of it to shell any that came near the area. On came the Japanese, specifically Colonel Ando's 42nd Regiment, and on bicycles, which allowed them to move at an impressive rate. Their lead elements reached the 419th Hyderabad position on the afternoon of January 5th. This was mostly a probing attack to see if the enemy would retreat or fight. The Hydra men fought back and killed 60 enemy troops. Colonel Ando could have pushed the issue. Thus far, mostly, the Japanese had come off better each time. But considering that this was only the first engagement of the area, he decided to wait for support, some of which were the tanks. The next day, January 6th, Major Toyosaku Shimada and his 17 medium and three light tanks reached the conflict point. The question now was, what was the best way to proceed? And this was where Shimada threw in a monkey wrench regarding how the fighting had been going thus far. First, the British would know that the Japanese knew that the road would be heavily covered, considering the jungle to both sides was practically impenetrable. So the defenders might not think the attackers would come barreling down the main road, getting shot at all along the way. Next, the Japanese had started most attacks with the rising sun. So Shimada asked Ando for permission to charge down the road, leaving themselves exposed to concentrated fire. But to help counter this, they would start their attack in the darkness before the sun arose. Ando gave his permission, and Shimada headed out at 3.30 a.m. on January 7th. At the time, it was raining heavily, which might cover the sound of the approaching tanks. But not wanting to rely on that alone, the raindrops would be mixed with artillery and mortar fire. The enemy would be awakened with shrapnel, and then from the bullets and shells of the quickly approaching tanks. The element of surprise and speed worked flawlessly. The tanks were able to zoom by the Hyderabad troops and their roadblocks. Then the supporting infantry of the 42nd Regiment followed up, and, keeping with the theme of speed, rushed right at the Indians of the 12th, forcing them into the jungle. It was all over in 30 minutes, with only the loss of a single tank. The first line of defense had been shattered. Some of the fleeing Hyderabad troops ran south and alerted the men of the 5-2nd Punjab, who were all put on alert, and by not being surprised, when the tanks came roaring down the road, three of them were taken out by anti-tank fire and landmines. This strong response created its own roadblock, and the advance came to a halt. Now was the time for close-quarter combat. But instead of just engaging the enemy, the British-led troops here had a golden opportunity to wipe out many of the enemy's tanks. Nearby was their artillery support, 
If that could have been brought to bear, then the resulting fire could have littered the road with enemy tanks and corpses. But by then, the Japanese had cut the lines, and so the five-second Punjab could not contact anyone. Hence, they went on fighting alone. But as the minutes passed, enough defenders were kept pinned down to allow brave Japanese soldiers to come out from behind their tanks and remove the obstacles in the road. By 6 a.m., the tanks were rolling again. Thirty minutes later, at 6.30 a.m., it was the turn of the 2nd Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. Though they were the most experienced in jungle fighting, as they were the third echelon, they were not given anti-tank weapons, so engaged the Japanese, but without the proper tools. But to make this untenable situation even worse, the first four Japanese tanks were mistaken for retreating carriers. Hence, the leading tanks were able to whiz by the defenders without a shot. This effectively cut the defenders' position in half, as in they were now unable to cross the road to help shore up any weak points. The four enemy tanks saw to that. So when the remaining tanks arrived, the defenders were in a pickle, with four tanks among their numbers and even more tanks, with supporting infantry and artillery, coming ever closer. This forced the British troops to fight as separate units, as best they could. Still, the men of the 2nd Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders gave as good as they got. In fact, the Japanese were held up here longer than they had been at the two previous locations. But with the tanks and superior numbers, the Japanese were eventually able to push forward and keep going south. Seeing the inevitable, the Commonwealth companies on the eastern or right side of the road tried to outflank the enemy. If they could get in their rear, then the attackers would probably stop of their own accord. But it was not to be. First, the more numerous attackers had the men to spare to engage these men. And two, the leading Japanese units were ordered to keep pushing south. Some of these flanking troops of the British would be in the jungle for at least six weeks, seeking ways to strike at the enemy. As for the larger war, they could only guess that things had not gone well. Either way, they had entered the jungle and were no longer a part of blocking up the road. The companies on the west or left side of the road tried the same thing, but ended up with the same results. A company did manage to get away into the jungle, but again were now not defending the road. Company D tried to follow suit, but the majority of them were captured before they could flee. When roll call was taken the next day, on January 8th, only 94 Argyles were there to give a response. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. To pull back from the fighting for a moment, 
concerning the Argyles and the other captured men. As the Japanese were still obsessed with speed, the POWs were quickly broken into two groups, those that could walk and those that could not. This latter group was executed. The survivors were forced to dig graves for their comrades and then help the Japanese wounded who could not walk. Back to the battle. Now that the third and last most northern defensive position was breached, the tanks rambled down the road. But not wanting to let the Japanese get any further south than possible, the men of Lieutenant Colonel Cyril Stokes' 514th Punjab Battalion, the most northern of the 28th Gurkha Brigade, and guarding the closest bridge to the Japanese, were ordered to advance north. Hence, the leading enemy tanks ran right into the marching Punjabis. But the Punjabis weren't just marching up the road, they were in a marching formation. So when the first three tanks came at them, Lieutenant Watanabe ordered them to keep going and open fire with their machine guns. Many Punjabis went down, as did Lieutenant Colonel Stokes, now mortally wounded. The tanks kept going, the surviving Indians scattered into the jungle. At 8 a.m., the lead tanks had reached the most northern unit of the 28th Gurkha Brigade of Lieutenant Colonel Selby that was still guarding the bridge. But because the communication lines had been cut by the Japanese early on, Selby and his staff had no idea of what was going on or that they were now the front line of the war. The tanks tore through Selby's headquarters area and the two supporting battalions, the 2nd Gurkha to Selby's southwest and the 2nd Gurkha to Selby's southeast. All were scattered before the tanks, as had been the men of the 12th Indian Brigade to the north. Fortunately, many of the men, though now wounded, were able to cross to the south side of the rail bridge before the majority of the Japanese troops arrived. After the Japanese had crossed this first bridge, which wasn't blown due to the confusion and rapid retreat, they turned left or to the east, now heading for the Slim River Bridge. But first, they slammed into the last defensive unit between them and the bridge, the 2-1st Gurkha Battalion. Unfortunately for the Gurkhas, they were marching away from the approaching Japanese tanks, who were able to shoot them up from behind, with little warning. Indeed, this unit would suffer more casualties than the previous units so far engaged. By the next day, only one officer and 27 other men were available for active duty. The brigade's commander, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Fulton, wounded in the stomach, was captured and would die two months later. So far, in a battle that was not quite five hours old, the tanks of Major Shimada had destroyed and or scattered two brigades worth of defenders. There was little left besides the 155th Field Artillery Regiment just south of Slim River Bridge and the other small force on the far left flank that was in no position to stop this tidal wave. And yet, there was one more force, a battery of Beaufort's 40mm anti-aircraft guns that were, 
on the immediate south side of the Slim River Bridge. But, as the Japanese came racing up, they had massacred artillery and medical units along the six-mile road from the turn to the upcoming bridge. The Singapore and Hong Kong Artillery Regiment, on loan, found that their Boerfors were unable to penetrate the light and medium tanks, and the defenders had been lucky even to get off a few shots. Such was the speed of the approaching enemy armor. But the defender's ace was the demolitions attached to the bridge. Yet before that could be activated, Lieutenant Wantanabe, who was leading this charge, after leaving Shimada with the main group for mop-up operations, leapt down from his vehicle and cut the wires, rather dramatically, with his sword. His sword had come free of its scabbard at 8.30 a.m. The bridges that led to Kuala Lumpur were taken by the Japanese, which meant flinging the 11th Indian Infantry Division out of their path in only five hours. Having the bridges they needed, and it still being early in the day, the Japanese had several options still open to them. But one of the first steps, besides securing the 16 miles or 25 kilometers of battle they had just passed through, was to check the next part of the road further south, of the Slim River Bridge. By now, thinking little of the defender's ability, Wantanabe sent Ensign Sato with three tanks down the road, unknowingly towards the 155th Field Artillery Regiment. The two 4.5-inch howitzers engaged the oncoming tanks, but not before Sato got off a shot that knocked one of the howitzers on its side. By now, the tanks were even closer, but the sacrificed gun allowed the men of the 155th time to lower the barrel of their second gun and get off a shot. That shell connected with the tank Sato was in, killing him instantly. Without their leader, the two other tanks turned and went back to the bridge. Still, it wouldn't take much to push this lone gun of the British defenders, out of the way. The road behind the 155th Field Artillery Regiment was as good as open. The 11th Indian Infantry Division was all but destroyed. The 12th Indian Brigade only existed on paper, now numbering some 430 men and 94 officers, while the 28th Brigade could no longer be called a fighting force as it was down to 750 men, some of them wounded. In all, the 11th Indian had lost, on this morning of fighting alone, some 3,200 troops, killed, captured, or missing. To be sure, many of the surviving defenders had run into the jungle, but over time would be captured as the Japanese controlled the peninsula. Of these men... Like a few of the Argyles, they were still in hiding in the jungle when the war came to an end. One Gurkha NCO was found in late 1949. He simply didn't know the war was over. For G.O.C. Percival, though maintaining his professionalism, it seemed hard to remember a time before his troops on the Malayan Peninsula 
were not falling back to set up a new defensive line. And when the sun rose on the next day, January 8th, that same order was given. But there was good news. The 18th Infantry Division, which had been en route to the Middle East, had its course altered, now to the Far East. It and the personnel of the 82nd Anti-Tank Regiment were taken to India, with the idea that they would all make for Singapore. Given the lack of transport ships, the 53rd Brigade Group was sent first and would arrive on January 13th. The rest would come later, but were expected by early February. Even better, additional anti-tank and anti-aircraft regiments were expected to be redirected to Singapore. But at least Percival could tell the men of the 11th Indian Infantry Division that they were about to get some rest. For two newly formed Indian brigades that would be a part of the new 17th Indian Infantry Division were on their way. In fact, the 45th Indian Infantry Brigade had landed in Singapore on January 3rd. And to support these still untrained, unequipped men, tanks were coming in from the Middle East. But all that was for later. For now, the surviving Indians were told to pull back to Johor, to only engage in demolitions, but to not stop retreating. Taking their place and getting their crack at the Japanese would be the 8th Australian Infantry Division. General Sir Archibald Wavell, commander of the American-British-Dutch-Australian Command, or ABDICOM, arrived in Singapore on January 7th. Looking over all the after-action reports, it was his belief that the enemy's success so far had not been due to their superior ability, but because of British mistakes. He would correct that, which should allow the enemy to be finally stopped in Johor. Singapore would be saved. 